Father, I thank you that uh, you've given us this place, that you've given us this freedom, this opportunity. We pray that you would minister to us, that we would hear your voice, that we would understand what you were saying to us personally this evening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, um, let's see. I'll just get Mark opened up that way if I, if or when I get that far, we're uh, ready for that. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. Okay. So, uh, Jesus um, has, you know, begun his earthly ministry. We talked about how he had begun uh, choosing the apostles, telling them to come and follow him. And we come to this point where in verse 29, it says, Now as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, because he had gone to the synagogue and preached there that day, and he cast out the demon that uh, was in the man who was uh, sort of contradicting him, and we talked about that. As soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon, Peter, and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand, lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. That's a, you know, a complete healing when you can go from bedridden with illness to instantly capable of serving and caring for others. Uh, the uh, fever that is described in this uh, would leave you sick for many days after. Um, you know, it's the type of fever where you would have been vomiting and you would have been, you know, completely uh, subdued, uh, you know, low-grade fever. Sometimes we bounce back. When it's uh, a fever such as described here, uh, it takes a long time to recover. We see that um, in Jesus' healing. Uh, it's not always this way. Um, sometimes you'll, you'll think about the uh, man who was blind, and Jesus begins the process and asks him, you know, basically, how are you seeing? And he says, it's, it's men look like trees walking around. And then the complete healing. That's sort of out of the ordinary. Um, I find an assurance in that because, you know, I, I see people who, you know, have come to the Lord and it's just like the magic wand got waved over them. And, you know, they don't have any desire for the things of the world anymore. They don't stumble or struggle and they just, you know, instantly squeaky clean Joe Christian. And uh, I find that very annoying, you know, my whole process. You remember that poem, Footprints in the Sand, you know, where it describes how, you know, there was two sets of footprints and then I saw one and the poet sort of describes complaining to the Lord, you know, basically saying, why did you leave me? And then, you know, the Lord says, it was then that I carried you. And, you know, if that's my poem, you know, it would have to be more like, what is all this drag mark? You know, you know, why, why is my face imprinted in the ground right there? You know, I just, you know, is then that I stomped you into submission? I don't know. It, it, it was the Lord progressively brings us along, some of us. 
uh, here, uh, it's a beautiful thing when the Lord completely delivers someone from whatever plagued them, and uh, they're capable of just springing into life. We shouldn't be critical of either one. If we're a person who was completely, wholeheartedly healed, delivered by the Lord, uh, we see someone that struggles through their walk, we shouldn't be critical of them. Um, you know, we shouldn't think that the person who's instantaneously delivered from whatever is faking it. <laughs> you know, that can't be real. That, you know, the Lord works in people in different ways. The, the beauty of his patience, uh, whatever our condition, whatever our process uh, that he brings us through. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful God. Uh, that we serve here, and uh, she's made completely whole. Um, you could take the opportunity to jump at a number of things about the fact that Peter's married, and uh, Paul makes mention of the fact that the church at Corinth has turned on him, and they, uh, they've had people turn their hearts against Paul, and he talks about, is it only Peter that can have a wife? M meaning literally supported by the ministry. You know, is it only Peter that can be taken care of this way? You know, could we not, Barnabas and, and Paul, also be cared for in this same way? They're complaining about the fact that they're, uh, you know, they're, they're acting like uh, Barnabas and Paul took you know, from the church, oh, they were a burden to us or something. And Paul saying, I, as I recall, I had a full-time job. I worked, I supported myself. I was never a burden to the church. But it's proper, is what he's saying, that you would care for. Look at Peter. He's pointing out the example of how he's taken care of. Um, of course, uh, we, we hear from church history that uh, Peter uh, refused to be crucified right side up. Um, that uh, we we don't know how accurate that is. Uh, it seems to be fairly accurate that he declined uh, being crucified in the same way that Jesus was asked to be crucified upside down. Uh, what is little known sometimes is that church history records Peter's wife was crucified also and that they crucified her in front of him before they crucified him. Uh, so uh, he, according to church history, called out to her and told her to remember the Lord as she went to her death. So a very serious couple, a very uh, you know, committed uh, couple demonstrating faith. And <clears throat> honestly... You know, the, this example, the thing that's most remarkable for it is that uh, they went to those deaths because they believed wholeheartedly, 100% in the resurrection. They, they did not go to that, right, out of ignorance. You know, think about the followers of Jim Jones, Guyana, 1979, uh, 1,000 people, uh, Waco, Texas, David Koresh, uh, you know, the followers, uh, um, trying to think of the name of that church where they, they all committed suicide, uh, waiting for the, the mothership to come, the UFO. You know, it just, it wasn't a blind, stupid faith. They had seen Rome crucify Jesus, seen Jesus Christ resurrect himself, 
had Jesus Christ promised that same resurrection to them. They died for their faith, knowing full well that they were going to be redeemed from the grave. So here we get a glimpse at the family uh, of uh, Peter and uh, the reference to his wife and his mother-in-law in it. Interestingly enough, um, there is uh, a location in Capernaum uh, that um, they believe is actually the remains of Peter's home. Um, so first century uh, Christian symbols all over the walls of the house. Um, you say, well, you know, of course, well, unbelievably rare in a Jewish community uh, to have these Christian symbols. Uh, that certain legend, certain accounts led them to think that. And then later, uh, the Roman Catholic institution built this giant structure. Looks like a spaceship. You know, go home and look up uh, the images of Peter's house. And uh, you're gonna, it looks like a spaceship landed on top of it. So um, it, it's crazy. But um, they found uh, Roman records uh, for taxation later that um, uh, spoke of uh, Simon, the fisherman, who was taxed for living there. And Rome taxed according to the number of occupants in the home. And so uh, Peter, this fisherman, taxed by Rome, his mother, or his wife and his mother-in-law, and then later a Jewish rabbi, an unnamed Jewish rabbi, lived in the home with them, and they were taxed for that. So, um, you know, always nice when archaeology or, you know, people say archaeology confirms the Bible, but always nice when the Bible confirms archaeology, you know, when we're able to see the truth of God's word held out uh, in that way. So this house, possibly the one that I stood next to, uh, where uh, they went in, Peter's mother-in-law healed. Verse 32, at evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. Isn't that nice, ladies, when uh, you know someone brings an unannounced guest home? Um, and uh, not bad enough, uh, he's the local preacher of great fame. And then add to it, the whole city's on your lawn. You know, So um, probably there were some interesting conversations. Uh, around this circumstance, but uh, the whole city gathered at the door because they have seen demon possession dealt with, illness dealt with. So get everybody that you know or you suspect of demonic possession or illness and drag them over there and have Jesus uh, heal them in the process. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him he he did not allow the demons to speak quite contrary to the way we see a lot of the flamboyant you know false teachers acting today they you know want the demon to give his name they want you know they, they've even developed a thing now where they say if, if you don't make the force the demon to say his name uh, when you're expelling him, then then he has the right to come back and possess 
the person. You know, you search the scripture, you don't find that anywhere. Okay. Mostly uh, the reason that Jesus is not letting them speak, and we see a little bit of that uh, through this beginning portion of the ministry, especially, you know, tell no one what I have done. Don't share this with anyone. He, he does that over and over again. Is because they have a misconception about what the Messiah is, what he's supposed to be. They're hoping for a king of Israel who's going to conquer Rome. And, you know, hopefully they'll get positions of power is what they're, they're thinking. They reveal that the disciples reveal that to us when they're arguing over who's the greatest in the kingdom. Who's, you know, basically who's going to be the vice Messiah. Who's going to have, you know, the treasurer's role in all of this. Who's going to be the general in charge of the military there. They've got all these plans for themselves. Uh, remember the occasion where uh, Jesus has to uh, move through the crowd and keep them from forcing him to be the Messiah. All of that is because he has very specific days in mind where things are going to take place. They're, they're not going to happen when the people think they're supposed to happen. They're going to happen when the scripture says they're supposed to happen, particularly he needs to march into Jerusalem on April 632 AD uh, to fulfill what was given to Daniel the prophet, Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, from the order to restore and rebuild the temple to the coming of the Messiah, 173,880 days to the day. So he can't have anybody jump the gun on that or push it back. It needs to happen exactly when the Lord intended um, and in the way that the Lord attended. So they don't get to speak because they knew him, right? They, they had seen him on the throne in heaven. And uh, the, he's, he's trying to keep the inappropriate press corps from, you know, uh, developing something that isn't supposed to take place. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight. Now that's always convicting, Right. You know, for those of us that wake up at the crack of noon, um, you know, Jesus is up a long time before the sun rises. And uh, this is the idea that he's up before the sky begins to lighten. It's still dark. Twilight hasn't begun, you know, civil twilight, however we want to refer to that. He's up while it's dark. He went out and departed to a solitary place. And there he prayed. Again, you take the example of prayer, take the example of baptism. If our Lord saw fit to do it, needed to do it, then how much more appropriate that we would do it. Jesus is so superior to us. Uh, we should definitely be men and women of prayer, learning to pray more and more all of the time. Simon and those who were with him searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you. No kidding. That's why he took off. He snuck away in the dark in order to begin his day of ministry in prayer. He said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. I dwell on this quite a bit, um, and it is sort of post-traumatic stress disorder. For a preacher, uh, Jesus' ministry was a preaching ministry. It was not a signs and wonders ministry. Okay, Signs and wonders followed, but he always went to preach. 
everywhere he went, that was his intention. Got to leave here. Got to go over there. What for? To preach. We can't stay here any longer. We got to go into the next place. Why? I need to preach. I need to preach. I need to preach. Uh, the scripture tells us signs and wonders will follow. Okay? And the Greek language is very specific about that. If we are disciplined followers of Jesus Christ and we are students of the scripture, then signs and wonders will follow. It doesn't say that Christians should be infatuated with signs and wonders and follow signs and wonders around. And this is a lot of what Christianity does. Um, I remember everybody was, you know, rushing off to Kansas City in the early 80s. You know, the Kansas City prophets were speaking. Got to run off and see their miracles. And then, oh, it's Lakeland, Florida, and now everybody's down there. And then it's Toronto, Canada, and everybody's rushing up there. So, you know, the Toronto blessing has arrived, and, and everybody's just shuffling around, looking for the next big thing. And then we find later that the claims that are being made are all false. You know, there was a, a poor, poor, she's incredibly wealthy uh, young woman that was in, intense, in uh, attendance with us a number of years ago. And uh, <clears throat> it'll sound silly, but... <clears throat> She got caught up. She was very sick, and uh, she got caught up with the Kansas City prophets. And the thing that they had developed into was known as IHOP, the International House of Prayer. So, International House of Pancakes literally eventually sued them over that issue. Okay, the acronym belongs to them. Okay, so um, anyway, uh, she went out there, and um, they took advantage of her with promises that they were going to heal her. And she shows up with her fat bank account, and that's all they've got their eyes set on. And she comes back, unfortunately, <clears throat> very discouraged with the Lord. It wasn't the Lord that did that to her. You know, I tried to advise her not to go. But when what you're looking for is the miraculous, uh, I had a conversation with a gentleman that... He's since passed away, but uh, we were having a one-on-one -on -one Bible study one evening together, and he said, I just really wish that the church, uh, no, he said, I, I just really wish that the Holy Spirit was as powerful today as he was in the book of Acts. And I almost fell through the floor. Like, like you know, I said to him, I mean, do you understand what you're saying? That the Holy Spirit is no less powerful today. Nothing, nothing interferes with the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, and he said, "Well, I just wish that we were seeing as, you know, many miraculous things take place today, as were happening in the Book of Acts." And I said, "Are you aware that the Book of Acts spans forty years? And if you spread those miracles out over forty years, you're looking at less than a miracle a year." You know, if you sit down and read the book of Acts in an afternoon, I mean, you can sort of walk out of your study like, wow, you know, that was fantastic. But you just read for a little more than 40 years of history there. Uh, so, so, you know, I have seen miracles in my life. And in fact, quite a few miracles in my life, uh, ranging from people delivered from life-threatening illnesses, uh, you know, to lives changed that were, you know, rebellious to Christ, becoming obedient to Christ. I, 
I think that's probably the biggest miracle we see all the time. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't look at things with, again, like the apostles, a warped sense of what we think should, things should be. Uh, let the scripture reveal how things uh, should be. So here, you know, he's preparing for this and he's got to go preach. That's, that's his ministry, a preaching ministry. The word is always central. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. So he's even keeping the preaching confined to what they already have established as established ministry and established churches and established locations. He's keeping it inside the box. And, and let's be clear, this is the box they've designed. Synagogues were not part of God's plan. I'm not saying it was a rebellious thing, but they, they were developed while Israel was in captivity in Babylon. Uh, the, the plan for the Lord was that you would go to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And if it was too far for you to go to Jerusalem, then you would uh, worship in your appointed town, but you would go at least to the four appointed feasts a year in Jerusalem uh, and to worship with everyone else. Uh, it, it was their rebellion and their idolatry that led them to be taken away into captivity. And they're in captivity as they began to develop this sense of uh, nationality and also of religion that they started building synagogues, places where they could it was it was everything Jewish. So uh, if you needed, uh, I'm exaggerating. But if you need to get a dog license, if you needed to register your chariot, if you needed a wedding license, you know what? You know if if you if you were going to go to synagogue on Saturday, you know if if you were part of that Jewish community, synagogue is where you went, and that came back to Israel with them. Hey Troy, we're in. Uh, Mark uh, chapter 1, and I am at verse 39. So if you want to follow along. Um, so he's preaching in their synagogues, you know, the places uh, that they've established, the order of worship that they've established, and casting out demons. We can sort of assume safely he's also healing people, uh, right? That's what we've already seen in this passage, but he's, he's keeping to uh, this whole thing, and, and we see very next thing. Now a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, there's several things to examine about leprosy in this particular uh, occasion because it kicks off uh, a series of lepers being healed that are very significant to the whole of all of the Gospels. So to begin with, uh, leprosy. Um, uh, you know, I know a lot of preachers, and I'm not contradicting them, a lot of preachers today point at what's called Hansen's disease and say that is leprosy. It is leprosy defined by the medical community of today. But in this day, leprosy was a very broad range of skin disorders. And 
the um, one uh, common uh, element of it is it's not going to heal. It, it's going to, and it's contagious. So, uh, you know, they, they uh, probably not even so much contagious as then the diseases that they're carrying are contaminating their environment. Okay, so um, it, it certainly probably included Hansen's disease, what is known as leprosy today, but it also was probably broader than that uh, as far as what it did. Um, leprosy was considered uh, barely a step above death. Um, the, the, it was a death sentence. It was going to kill you. Um, they considered you as good as dead if you caught it. Um, you were not allowed, you had to be a hundred paces away from anyone. Uh, uh, the, uh, rabbis, uh, took pride in tormenting lepers, which taught the community to, that if they had a similar attitude, it was more than acceptable. Uh, they referred to it as the finger of God. Uh, the, the idea behind that is that God had touched you with his finger and cursed you the, you know, like, like this one is cursed so that the whole community, you know, that was their mindset. God had touched the individual to show the community. This one has been cursed by me and I'm going to put this outward sign on them so that you will know who they are. So they, they had it in their mind that you, you were probably very deeply evil and God had placed a curse upon you. It was a death sentence. Um, you know, they, they tortured them through rocks at them, tormented them, mocked them. It was, it was a horrible state of existence it, and you were immediately cut off from your entire existence. You could be the wealthiest person in the world. Um, your wealth might allow you to build a location or have a location of isolation for yourself. And maybe you could carry on in business remotely, but you weren't going to have direct contact with people from that day forward. A total isolation until they put you in the ground. Jesus here, this, this man, this imploring is uh, the deepest sense of wound, emotional destruction. He, he's begging Begging. I mean, convulsive crying uh, is not much of a uh, stretch for me to say was part of this imploring. It, it's it's a, a level of desperation probably few of us have ever experienced. Um, a, a very rare rare thing. Kneeling down. He's he's completely humbling himself. And then that statement: If you are willing. Okay. I know you have the capacity. I've heard, I've seen what you can do. I've seen your capabilities. I, I, I have a complete experiential understanding that you are capable of this. So, so the leper is making confession to Jesus' power, but he's, he's just like it sounds. He's putting it in the position of this is all on your end. If this is going to happen for me, it's going to have to come from your grace, your uh, willingness to participate and make me well. He, he, 
He puts his whole life in Jesus' hands and says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him. And listen, you can hear the air leave the room with that line. Just everyone that witnessed that literally just went, (gasps) what? He touched the leper. That immediately makes Jesus unclean. He cannot go to temple. He can't be engaged with the rest of the community. He now has to be in isolation in the same way that man was in isolation, at least for the prescribed period of time. He has just defiled himself in the process. Now, I'll take the time to jump at a subject here regarding Jesus' purity. When Jesus comes in contact with that which is impure, Jesus purifies it. When we come in contact with something that's impure, it defiles us. And that's why the law is set up the way it is. Don't touch that which is unclean. You you go, of course, I get that concept. A lot of Christianity does not. They engage in things that are spiritually unhealthy. And they defile themselves in the process. And sometimes you'll even hear them try to claim the ability to do that based upon, well, Jesus hung out with the drunkards. You know, Jesus was hanging out with prostitutes. Jesus was, yeah, Jesus is purifying those environments. You know, the, 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 you know, the defiling of the world comes upon us, right? It, it isn't just an old world statement. It's scripture that says bad company corrupts good morals. We do need to be very careful about the company we keep. Jesus, he didn't have to concern himself with that. There's a wonderful example uh, in that process. You know, the church does have a role. And collectively, for us to pull people out of the world, great, you know, collectively. For us to go and associate ourselves with things that are spiritually defiled is going to defile us. We have to be very, very cautious about not doing that. Jesus reaches out, touched him, said, I am willing, be cleansed. Now listen, this guy asks to be cleansed. Just stop the deterioration and make it possible for me to sort of re-enter life. Um, This leprosy, particularly, that is described here, was probably the deadening of the nervous system, starting at the peripheral, the extremity of the uh, nervous system, hands, feet, toes, nose, ears, lose sensitivity, and as a result, injuries go untreated. So, cruising along with your open-toed sandals in the ancient world, smash your foot on the rock, barely even notice that you stumbled. You've shattered bone and split toenails, and you've got open wound, and You spend some time, hours, minutes, rest of the day, cruising around like nothing happened as you're just filling that injury full of infection. 
So now when you notice it, you have a great emotional breakdown over why didn't I notice such a severe injury? And then they start to come one after the other, right? You're trying to heal up from that one. The infection spreading through the body and you reach out and grab a hold of the hot kettle and it didn't even, you know, affect you and, you know, sizzled all the way over to the table and set it down and then noticed, you know, destruction of the hand. You know, if you were good about this, you had people that helped you and cleanse those things and then you develop a certain degree of caution. But hygiene, and I'll be discussing uh, pimples, untreated insect bites, small injuries become big problems, all kinds of stuff sets in. The flesh literally starts to rot away. The individual is decomposing. It, it, it has the appearance that death has struck this person, even as they stand. Uh, it was recorded by Josephus that... Uh, What's described here as this full-blown leprosy could be smelled for more than 100 yards. As you approach the leper, you would immediately recognize that this person is in the throes of decomposition. Jesus reaches out and touches him. He's asking for a halt and a cleansing. What was just said when Jesus says, be cleansed as soon as he spoke immediately the leprosy left the man and he was cleansed the word is made whole so he didn't walk around the rest of his days scarred he was completely delivered and all that had been damaged was restored back to him his life was brought back to him that's another thing to consider so Many of us have gone so far with our sinfulness that we have that thought, like, I can never get everything I've lost back. I can't ever have this restored. My reputation, my name, my family, whatever it is, we're convinced there is no hope for us. And Jesus Christ is willing to touch what the world has said is untouchable, to cleanse, completely heal, and restore. That's what he does in this moment. Now, verse 43 says, And he strictly warned him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way and show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Such an interesting passage of scripture. I'll just get a drink here. Fifteen hundred years previously, Moses has recorded in the Levitical law how to number one identify leprosy. I have to go through this process of isolating the individual, cleansing, seeing if it remains seeing if it returns. Once you've classified it, then you have to isolate it. It's completely quarantined. If it's ever cleansed, it has to come back. 
and B, reported to the priest. They go through a similar process of verifying the cleansing before you can be restored back into the community. If you have leprosy and you just return to your life, the law allows for you to be stoned to death without any hesitation. You're contaminating the body of Israel. So it's, it's, it's dealt with very harshly. <clears throat> Carefully researched, as far as we know, no one in 1,500 years ever went to the priests and said, I've been cleansed. Sometimes, when I teach these Bible studies, people will come to me later and say, oh, you should have done your homework. You know, Naaman was cleansed. Right. Naaman was a Syrian, not Jewish. He had none of the Jewish restrictions on his life. He didn't have to isolate himself away from his community. He was living with his family. He had a, a Jewish servant girl working for him. Okay, He didn't fall under the Jewish law at all. When he was restored, he didn't go to the priests. He went home. He went back to Syria. Okay, So we have a biblical account of a cleansing... And I'm not just trying to, you know, do some kind of corrective teaching here. I, I really want to drive the point of what seems to be in place right here. This man is the first to be cleansed. And he is the first to be sent to the priest. The priest he's going to go see is Caiaphas, who's going to crucify Jesus. Caiaphas is going to receive this man and he's probably going to have to go, what are we supposed to do? We know how to classify a leper. We know how to shun a leper. We know how to throw rocks at lepers, but we don't know how to restore them back into good standing in the culture and their family and the community. If you go and you read the law, what is required is that the individual would bring two doves. They would put one of the doves inside an earthen vessel. They would have a wooden stake and they would go to running water and they would kill the dove inside the earthen vessel with the wooden stake overrunning water they would come with the dead dove inside the earthen vessel and pour the blood of that bird out upon the second bird and then set it free if you're a biblical student at all that's firing off all kinds of symbols for you right this body is an earthen vessel jesus christ right the holy spirit comes down upon him at john's baptism in the form of a dove take the dove and put it in an earthen vessel the form of the spirit in an earthen vessel that's jesus killed with a wooden stake while in the earthen vessel over living water running water a symbol of the Holy Spirit, a symbol of the Word of God. His blood poured out upon our spirit, the second bird providing freedom. 
Really remarkable Old Testament picture. Here's this leper. Go to Caiaphas. Caiaphas has to perform. How did this happen to you? Jesus of Nazareth. Later, leper shows up. Later, second leper, third leper, ten lepers at a time. By the time Jesus is crucified, every time a leper is showing up, these guys are going, let me guess. Jesus of Nazareth, right? This is an amazing moment in all of Jewish history, right? Jesus departs and the whole process ends. Verse 45, however, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and just spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in deserted places. And they came to him from every direction. And that was most likely, you know, his whole motivation in not wanting it to be spread around, that he could continue to you know, uh, minister openly and, and freely and perform this. The, the biggest reason that it explodes in the way that it did is because of the fact that it hasn't ever happened. Jesus comes, performs this miracle, which just blows everybody's mind in the process and changes the culture, changes the community. Jesus goes to the deserted places, the wilderness, as we say, and that, like John the Baptist, ends up being how he thins the crowd. You know, if you got to be serious <laughs> if you, if you want to see Jesus. You know, before, if he's walking around the streets and doing ministry and his popularity isn't this wild, uh, you know, people might ask, what's that all about, that gathering? Oh, that's Jesus of Nazareth. He's, he's like the latest and greatest rabbi. And, eh, you know, if they're not interested, they're not going to go over. If they are, they might. Well, now that you know you found out that he's doing something that's absolutely impossible, healing the lepers, people begin to throng to him. So verse 1 of chapter 2, again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house, and that's the idea of his residence perhaps with, with Peter is what we sort of assume in, in this process. Immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. So houses full, throng at every window, at the doorway. You, there's no way you're getting in. Um, you're probably not even going to get close enough to catch an earful of what's going on. It's, it's just that packed around the house, and people cannot... Uh, get into here. He preached the word to them. They came to him, bringing uh, a paralytic who was carried by four men. You got to like these four guys. They're they're serious. I mean, if you get to a point in life where you've got four friends that are this dedicated to you personally, you're a pretty rich individual. That they don't care Oh, about your whining and complaining and your protests, or the opposite. You're pleading and want them to take you, and they're taking you. you got four guys that are wholeheartedly committed to your needs. A paralytic was carried by four men. When they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where 
he was. That is not a small task. Uh, these homes, the, the ancient homes, uh, built with wood, overlaid with plaster, uh, with just wooden staves, wooden beams, and they would mud between them and then, you know, uh, have a slightly arched roof, mud over them, more sticks the opposite direction, just lattice work, uh, wood and plaster, and wood and plaster. And you got a big, thick roof with good heavy beams inside, and the, the whole thing is a solid structure. Was it when they tore through the roof? I mean, this is an excavation project. I mean, these guys probably, like, came upstairs with large rocks and started smashing on the roof. If you're inside the house, it, I mean, the commotion is going to be such that people are, are, when this is all over, you know somebody was like, so are you coming by tomorrow to affect repairs? What is going on? They tore the roof apart. These roofs, house to house, one up against another, this was like the porch. Uh, it would sometimes have a stairwell inside. Usually the stairwell was on the outside of the house. And, uh, you know, rather than go in the backyard uh, or, uh, you know, anything like that, th you would go to the roof, barbecue on the roof. That was sort of the evening thing is uh, to spend your time with your family on the roof of the house. Uh, they often in the ancient world referred to it as the rooftop road because the houses were so close together that you could travel right across the roofs. Very solid structure. So just a little bit of background there. They've come to this roof and they are tearing it apart. This is a remarkable thing that they're uh, doing for their friend. They've broken through. They let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Remarkable uh, moment in, in all of uh, history uh, that Jesus is going to enter uh uh, interact with this man in this way uh, to call him son again uh, to be a paralytic was to be shunned by the community uh, you are not you know anytime anyone was sick uh, you know they they rarely thought remember you know uh, oh, how, how is this man made blind was it because of his sins or was it because of his parents you know they have no other option so, somebody sinned Clearly, somebody sinned is, is their mindset. They were health, wealth, and prosperity teachers. And Jesus has to constantly correct that. It doesn't have anything to do with anybody's sin. Uh, this, this man is a paralytic. And Jesus calls him son. That, that was a lot like uh, reaching out to touch the leper. I mean, it's a lower grade embracing, but it's very similar to where the card is like, no kidding. I, like Jesus will own him as his own. That's that's really amazing. It stands out very strongly to them. Goes right to your sins are forgiven you. Uh, we've probably all studied this enough to know how this story unfolds and what we're going to examine. But I mean, take the approach of if I'm a paralytic, I have bigger problems than sin. Right. That 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 is probably the way that this man would think about that. Thank you very much. It's very kind. I appreciate that you're a rabbi. <laughs> you know, uh, maybe he's even reacting with the mindset that we might have. Well, you know, if you roll up in front of the healing service in your wheelchair 
and the guy says, uh, your, your sins are forgiven. Bring the next one up. You know what I'm saying? It just like, I, you're missing my need. My need is, you know, I need to get out of this chair. I really need to be healed is, is what he's most likely focusing on. Uh, Jesus uh, just poked the religious crowd right in the eye is what he did. He, he purposely just reached over and went, boink, you know, because <laughs> he knows that, that he could have just healed the man, right? We've seen, you know, these healings just before this. Peter's mom and, you know, the leper and just to heal the guy, like just get to the punchline. No, not what Jesus wants to deal with at all. He wants to deal with a much bigger picture. Some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Uh, reasoning in their hearts. They haven't said anything out loud. They haven't said anything out loud. If we're thinking, you know, Jesus is a 30-something-year-old man, and he's just very observant in the process. When the scripture tells us that Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, then it is just as it says. Jesus supernaturally understands what's going on in their hearts. This, this is spiritual x-ray vision. They, uh, they think Jesus is blaspheming. Very, very significant, this interchange. Who can forgive sins but God alone? No one is the answer. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to deal with. Right? Only God can deal with sin. Only God can forgive sin. No one else. Okay? The inappropriate application where Jesus says to his disciples, you know, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. You know, what you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Uh, you can't go around forgiving people of their sins if they have not been forgiven of their sins. No one can. Right? If they are a thief, you know, okay, I'll, I'll go right for a subject our culture does this with. Homosexuality. There's much of what labels itself Christianity that is now saying homosexuality is not a sin. That's not what the scripture says. Okay, I cannot redefine and label what God has clearly called sin as not sin, or vice versa, right? I can't label something that God has said is not a sin. I can't redefine that and label that as sin, right? We live in a world on that one subject, homosexuality, that now even the church is saying homosexuality is not a sin. And they have redefined, right, if we speak out against homosexuality, that is a sin. To, to say something is it. You can't judge. Not judging. I'm agreeing with the scripture. Right? We've talked about in this study, uh, as John the Baptist is baptizing, the people came confessing their sins. The word is amalageo, meaning that they said the same thing. Meaning that God said adultery is a sin. They came up and said, I'm an adulterer. Homosexuality is a sin. They came up and said, I'm a homosexual. Drunkenness is a sin. They came up and said, I'm a drunkard. 
they, they agreed with, said the same thing God was saying about their sin. They confessed their sins. The reason only God can forgive sins is because he's defined that which is sin. He has said what is and what is not sin. So here it is very significant, right? Because Jesus has forgiven sin. If he can forgive sin, then he must be God. That's exactly the point that he goes to. So for anyone that struggles with that concept, again, all through the scripture, the confirmation comes. Immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk? And probably the paralytic is saying, yeah, that's the line I was looking for. Right? In this, which is easier to say? What is easier to say is your sins are forgiven you. Right? Why? Because there's no verification. You, you can't say, if you say, take your bed and walk, there's going to be a strong moment right there where that is either confirmed or denied. The, the, the statement of your sins are forgiven, you, you know, right? They do that all the time. Just, you know, go around their little ceremony. Uh, you know, you, you have been absolved. You have been absolved. I forgive you. Our Father, our Heaven, just go and say five you know, Hail Marys and, and you'll be forgiven. Uh, that is something you cannot verify. That's between that person and the Lord. You can't declare, I can't declare it in the way that Jesus is declaring it here. Well, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you or, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, went out in the presence of them all, so that they all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. I would think so. I would think so. So interesting uh, that, uh, you know, we see in Matthew and Luke, as these things are recorded, that it actually begins when... And I know I'm adding to this, but it's it's just parallel correspondence. Uh, this actually began when Mary and her sons, other than Jesus, received word that Jesus was now declaring himself to be the Son of God. And it says that they, thinking him beside himself, literally meaning lunatic, went to collect him, literally to take him away to the funny farm. When they come to the house, and this has just transpired, and there's the great crowd and they can't get in, the crowd tells Jesus, hey, your mother and brothers are outside. And that's where Jesus says, who are my mother and brothers? Except for those right here in this room that do the will of my heavenly father. If he knows these guys' thoughts, you can guarantee he knew Mary and his other brother's thoughts about this guy is a lunatic. And he shuns them in the moment, saying, I'm doing my father's business and I'm surrounded by God's family in here. Those that obey the Lord and do his will. So collectively, that whole picture of claiming to be the son of God, people thinking him crazy, 
him forgiving sins, healing a person for verification, and then shunning those who shun his sonship authority is a remarkable picture in the scripture where he basically just spiritually stands right up and says, I am the son of God and I am capable of forgiving sins and performing miracles. So we'll have to pick up with uh, verse 13 and Matthew as the tax collector uh, next week. But remarkable uh, consolidation of the accounts that are taking place as Mark and, and Peter work together to build the book of Mark and just deliver all of this information in such a concise manner uh, uh, to us and to anyone that was studying. But the glorification of Jesus Christ as the Son of God who's capable of healing and forgiving sins. Really quite remarkable. Amen? Well, let's stand and we'll pray and we'll pick up at verse 13 next week. Lord God, we are uh, grateful for your love and your graciousness in our lives. And Lord, we pray that you would work in our hearts and minds and help us to love and trust you and, and come to you and kneel down in humility like the leper and just beg for your touch, your healing, your restoration. Lord, make us whole. Uh, make us clean. Cleanse us in your sight and in your presence, Lord. We long to be in you and in your will. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.